0: spending some time this week considering uh, what I wanted to speak on, I noticed a bit of a theme developing in my last two messages. See, my previous two messages were connected with the idea of conduct for Christian living, or what it looks like to live as a Christian. And I've decided to continue in that theme today. My first summer message was about our relationship with God's Word, right? how James reminded us that as Christians... It's our job to not only read the Bible, but to live it out in action. Hear it, do it. Then a few weeks ago, we looked at our relationship primarily with those outside the church. Through the words of Peter, we asked the question, what would it look like if we as Christians lived our lives in such a way that those around us were pointed to Jesus? Well, today we're going to go back into 1 Peter, and we're looking more so today at our relationships with those inside the church? Does our lifestyle and the way we connect with our brothers and sisters in Christ reflect the truth of Jesus' kingdom? Our big idea for today, and it's going to be up on the screen, and it's the big idea that's going to connect throughout the message today, is this. Be kingdom-minded. Now, what being kingdom-minded is and what that means is really just living with the kingdom of God In mind, letting it affect our actions, living as though Jesus is victorious. We'll be looking at how this connects to our private lives, how it connects to our public lives, that tricky spot where our public and our private intersect, and also how it connects to our church life. Are we living our lives in a way that reflects the truth of God's kingdom? Are we kingdom minded? If you have a Bible with you, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, it's going to be up on the screen as well in just a moment. Uh, it's, we're going to start with one little tiny part. But as you're you're heading there, it's 1 Peter 4. Uh, we're going to start in verse 7. Um, as I've said in the past couple messages, and I'm going to say it again today, once again, this passage is directed to Christians. This one perhaps more so than the others, because this is about how Christians interact with other Christians. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, once again I'll say we're very glad that you're here with us. You are most welcome to be with us this morning. Uh, today, once again, is a great time for you to be here because any of the topics, almost all of them, that we're discussing today, these these conducts in our life, these actions, are things that are great for our relationships with anybody. If you're any person and you want to connect with another person, these are great ways to do so. Um, so it'll help you in that, um, as well as it'll give you a bit more insight if you're considering looking a bit more into Christianity, give you some more insight into what it's all about. So we're going to start in First Peter chapter 4 at the beginning of verse 7. It's up on the screen there. The end of all things is near. Interesting place to start. The end of all things is near. In another translation that you have, it might say, the end of all things is at hand. Now, this is the same phrasing that Jesus uses in the Gospels when he says, the kingdom of heaven is near, or the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, sometimes I find people like to point at verses like this as reason to distrust parts of the Bible. Right? They'll say, well, if Peter and Jesus... If Peter says the end is near, and he wrote this, what, like 2,000 years ago, well, nothing's happened. (laughs) Jesus hasn't come back. The end hasn't come. Can we really call 2,000 years near? Peter must be wrong. How can we even trust what he has to say? Commentators like Karen H. Jobs would say that an interpretation like this sort of misses the point. She argues that the end is near, that phrase, is different, not the same as the end is soon. And that Peter is talking about a period of time rather than a specific point in time. We can think of it like this, she says, and I'll put the quote up on the screen. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, Peter's readers are living in the last stage, or the end, of God's redemptive plan. And the goal of that plan is being realized. We, too, are living in the last stage of God's redemptive process. It is no more or less true that the end is near today than it was when Peter first said it. It's not about being soon, it's about being near. We are in the last stages, the end process of God's great redemptive plan. Let me put it a different way. I like to tell stories. You've heard that. You've heard me up here telling stories about my childhood, uh, telling stories about current events, about what's happening here at the church, uh, telling stories about some of the good things and sometimes some of the bad things that I've done in my life. But what I've realized recently is that when I'm telling a story about something that's happened to me or something that I've experienced, I have a habit of using an interesting phrase. You may have heard me say it, but usually I start a story with, the other day, right? It's the other day. So, for instance, the other day, I went to a restaurant that makes what they call a sushi burrito. If you follow me on Instagram, you know this is true. So instead of making little pieces of sushi, they roll it up in one giant roll and serve it to you like a burrito. It was amazing. The other day... Uh, I was attempting to get off a paddleboard, you know, those like stand-up paddleboards, they're all the rage nowadays. I can't balance at all, but I was trying. And in the process of getting down, the other day, I somehow got my bathing suit string stuck on a rivet on the board. And so I'm like laying in the water, half under the board, with it on top of me, being like, I don't, I don't what do I even do here? I don't know. The other day, I took an idea that was in my head and I brought it to fruition when I made breakfast nachos. So it's like regular nachos, but instead of like ground beef and peppers and salsa, I covered it with scrambled eggs and breakfast sausage and hollandaise sauce. It was amazing. A lot of my stories are about food, if you haven't gained that yet. I like food. The interesting thing about these stories, though, is in reality, only one of these events actually happened the other day. It was just a few days ago. I went for a sushi burrito. But I fell off the paddleboard two weeks ago, and I made the breakfast nachos back in March. But when I start a story with the phrase, the other day, it's just my way of concisely saying, sometime recently, or sometime between now and when I was born, this thing happened to me. Because for all of these stories, when it happened isn't as important as the fact that it did happen. When it happened isn't as important as the fact that it did happen. And in the same way, the when here of Peter's statement about the end of all things isn't as important as the fact that it is happening. Jesus had victory over sin and death through his resurrection. And since his ascent to heaven, Jesus' return could happen at any time And it will happen at some point. Be kingdom-minded. We're going to continue verse 7, part B, if you will. 1 Peter chapter 4. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. We have one of those super important Bible words here. Therefore. So we want to look back. So, because of this. Because Jesus had victory. Because He is coming back again because the end of all things is near. Be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. This is a call to self control. It's a call to responsible living. It's a call to keep one's thoughts and actions in check. And really, it seems as though Peter's statement here is anticipating a number of different responses to the reality that the end is near. So one person might hear that the end is near and panic, right? Freak out, lose their composure, get so overwhelmed by fear and uncertainty about the end that they're not accomplishing anything for the kingdom. Another might hear that the end is near and say, Party! Yo, Jesus, coming back! For the early church-facing persecution, perhaps they would want to celebrate the downfall of their cruel, evil Roman neighbors, Perhaps they might take their salvation for granted, though, and engage in some less-than-pure activities. Sort of a God-will-forgive-me-so-I'll-do-whatever-I-want mentality. Despite the fact that a few verses ago, in the beginning of chapter 4, Peter reminded them to step away from such activities. Still another person might hear that the end is near and get complacent. You know, shrug their shoulders. God's going to do what God's going to do. Give up on those around them sit back and wait for the fireworks, so to speak. And in response to all of these different ideas or mentalities, Peter says this, calm down, be alert, show some self-control, and pray. It's a call to be useful and active in prayer because of the impending nature of the end of all things. When I read verses like this, I can't help but think of the story of Peter When he was with Jesus in the garden, shortly before Jesus was crucified, Jesus asked his friends, the disciples, to be alert and to spend time in prayer so they will not fall into temptation. Yet multiple times the disciples, Peter included, what'd they do? They they fell asleep. It's hard not to picture Peter remembering that moment as he writes these words. As sort of a, learn from my mistakes, this is important. Because the end of all things is near, be focused, self-controlled, and active in prayer. Another way I might say this today is we should be kingdom-minded in our private life. Let's continue. Verse 8, 1 Peter 4. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. He says, above all, Most importantly, if you're going to forget everything else, remember this. He says, love each other deeply, earnestly, intently. Now, the idea here isn't just a strong feeling or emotion, but it's an active choice. It's choosing to love even when it's difficult to do so. If you have siblings, you probably understand this well. Right? Siblings often, especially in their younger years, Argue, fight, have rivalry and competition. But even in the difficult times, in most cases at least, they still choose to love each other because they're family. Sometimes Natasha and I, when we're arguing or disagreeing about something, we make sure we say, I love you, but then we'll follow it up kind of with a joke saying, I may not like you very much right now, but I love you. It's that choice to love someone even when you don't like them that much. Because the reality is, is we're not always going to like everyone, always. As the church, even just here at Oak Ridge, we're made up of a collection of imperfect and flawed human beings from varying backgrounds with different personalities. Of course, we're going to butt heads sometimes. Of course, there's going to be people that maybe rub you the wrong way, or it's hard to get along with. If even in a family of relatives, there's arguments and disagreeing, of course, the church family is going to argue at times. But what's important, what's above all, as Peter says, is that in amongst that, we choose to love one another. This is that 1 Corinthians 13 type of love, you know, the love that's patient and kind, the love that doesn't keep a record of wrongs, the love that shows grace and forgiveness. That sort of love, Peter says, covers a multitude Of sins. Now, this part of the verse, I'll be honest, has always kind of confused me, so I was excited to spend some more time looking into it. Because, first of all, how can loving someone else cover their sins? Like, isn't it Jesus, only Jesus, that forgives us of our sins, first of all? And second of all, Peter is writing to Christians on how they should love other Christians, so shouldn't those people's sins already be covered or forgiven? what does this mean? Well, this is another case where we need to look a little bit deeper into what Peter is actually saying. The phrase you use, first of all, it bears some similarities to Proverbs 10 verse 12, which says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. So comparing hatred and love. Now, it's not a direct quote here, as Peter does in some other sections, But some commentators believe it was likely a common expression in the early church. When he says, love covers a multitude of sins, it was likely a common expression inspired by this proverb. So it's like the phrase that you might hear around a church sometime, love the sinner, hate the sin. Right? There's lots of Bible verses that talk about hating sin and lots that talk about loving everybody, including sinners, but there is no actual Bible verse quote that says, Love the sin or hate the sin. In that case, it's a saying that's inspired by the scripture. And here, that's what Peter, they believe, is doing as well. He's come up with this phrase or this common phrase, love covers a multitude of sins, based on this proverb. But common expression or not, we're still left with the theological problem of how can loving someone cover sin? Well, much how we discussed earlier that the end is near is not the same as saying the end is soon, in this case, love covers sin is not the same as love makes God forgive sin or love atones for sin. Job's again writes, and it'll be up on the screen, Peter is not making a theological statement about sins being forgiven by God. Nor is he saying that sin in the church should be ignored or denied or covered up. Instead, Peter is concerned with behavior that could destroy the Christian community. Such behavior must be extinguished or covered for the church to survive. So in other words, when someone wrongs us or sins against us, we can easily respond out of hurt or anger or frustration or revenge And that just starts a cycle and a downward spiral of sin and offense. Or, the other option, Peter says, is we can put an end to all that and extinguish or cover the cycle of sin by choosing to act in love instead of in hurt. Edwin A. Blum, another commentator, says, Love does not stir up or broadcast sin. Instead, Christians forgive because they've been forgiven. Sin aims to destroy unity and promotes discord in the church. But when love steps in and when our relationships are marked with grace and forgiveness, unity thrives and allows us to be effective in our calling as the church. So what does this look like practically? Well, when someone in the church wrongs you or rubs you the wrong way or does something that you don't like or disagree with, deal with it privately. Go and talk to them. Have a conversation. If you're interested, there's a whole step-by-step process in how to do this properly in Matthew 18. But what we really want to make sure we're not doing is gossiping. As uh, Blum said, broadcasting it to others, talking to other people, talking and whispering behind people's back. No good comes from that, and it starts that cycle, that spiral of sin and disunity. Another thing to remember, and this should be an easy one with all of our sports decorations all over the sanctuary here, but remember that in the church, we're all on the same team, right? We're all on the same team. We're working together. I was watching a cooking competition show on Food Network the other day, and the chefs were partnered up in teams of two for a challenge where they had to make some kind of special dish. Now, most teams, when the clock started, got right to work right away and started doing as much as they could in the 30 or so minutes that they had to make the dish. But one team didn't start right away. See, that team was struggling with deciding what dish they were actually going to prepare. Both of these chefs had very strong alpha personalities, and both had very strong opinions about both what they should be doing and how they should be doing it. They eventually spent, or they spent time flexing their ego, arguing, discussing, and eventually they decided on something and got to work. But in the end they had spent so much time arguing and worrying about what they thought was best that at the end of the challenge they didn't actually finish their dish. And they failed epically, they lost the challenge. See, even when we have disagreements or issues with the people around us, We need to keep the kingdom in mind. We should be working together for the good of the kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean we should never argue or debate. If the status quo is never challenged, that's when we stop growing and we get stagnant. But when it gets to the point that we're spending more time arguing than actually serving and living out our calling as a church, that can become a problem. And that doesn't just go for us here at Oak Ridge, but together with the bigger church in general, right? We're all on the same team. Even though we won't always agree with how other churches do things, how other denominations do things, and friends, they're not going to always agree with us on how we do things either. We've all been tasked with the responsibility of being Jesus' hands and feet here on earth, of going and making disciples, of sharing Jesus' love. Now, just to be clear before we move on, this is not an excuse to bulldoze over someone else. So I don't want to be hearing stories of people getting accosted in the back hallways after the church, like, Andrew says we need to stop arguing, so you need to stop arguing and just do what I say. right? I don't want to hear stories about that. (laughs) This is a call to a position of humility. It's a position of love and grace. All for the sake of unity and serving the kingdom of God. We should be kingdom minded in our private life or our public life. We're gonna continue into First Peter four (coughs) nine. Pardon me. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, hospitality was something that was incredibly important for the early church. Well, for one, churches weren't popping up in massive buildings on every street corner in every little village. In most cases, the early church actually gathered in homes or houses, which meant that people had to be willing to open up their homes for the church to even exist. Often people had to travel, perhaps from a couple towns over, to get to church. Sometimes it was maybe far enough that they wouldn't want to do the trip there and back in the same day. While at the time, inns weren't known for having a very safe reputation, so a lot of times these traveling churchgoers would be looking to stay overnight in the homes of someone else from their church. Hospitality was very important. And Peter says here, he mentioned, show hospitality, he says specifically, without grumbling. And that suggests that a negative view towards hospitality is actually an expected response. He knows that when you tell people to be hospitable, naturally there can be grumbling, he says. Hosting outside guests wasn't easy. It never is. It can be a lot of work. It adds to your cost. They're invading your space. And if you were one of the lucky people that has a big home, I mean, you kind of have no choice but to open up your home for the church to gather in. And opening it up as a place to gather would have brought huge risk of not just ostracization from your neighbors, but when the persecution started, I mean, nothing paints a bigger target on your back like hey, like, let's invite all of the Christians over to my house while people are going out and killing Christians. Nothing paints a bigger target. Hospitality was not an easy task, but it was a necessary one. To put it more into our context, no, you don't need to have guests overnight at your home or open up your house for worship for our church to survive. But on a very practical level, hospitality can create a warm, loving, welcoming atmosphere. It can help foster unity and connectedness. And it's a way we can demonstrate even just a little bit of Jesus' sacrificial love as we're willing to kind of put ourselves out there to welcome someone else. Hospitality can do a lot of things that we should want to do as followers of Jesus. To put it on a more principled level, Peter was calling the early church to be willing to take risks, to make sacrifices, to give up comfort and security for the sake of the mission of Jesus and his church. And that same call applies to us today. We should be kingdom-minded in the place where our private and public life collide. Two more verses. We're going to go to 1 Peter 4, chapter, uh, ten, verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace In its various forms. Now I love this verse because to me it's so, so, so encouraging. You'll notice it doesn't say if you have received a gift, use it to serve others. It says each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. This is not about something that you might get. It's not something that's just for certain people, like the pastors and the Sunday school teachers. If you are a believer and a follower of Jesus, you have been given a gift and with it an opportunity and a responsibility to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace. God wants us to be involved in His mission. If you're someone who has received and experienced his love and grace, you have the ability to share that love and that grace with others. Blum writes, every Christian is in some way capable of ministering to others. It's our job as believers to figure out what that looks like. You know, to put our unique giftings to use to serve the community both inside and outside the church. Now, I've been doing a lot of training sessions this summer, training our volunteers, our VBS volunteers, getting them ready, uh, training them in the policies and the procedures uh, with regards to working with children. And one of the things that we talk about in our Plan to Protect training, it's called adequate supervision ratios. It's basically just a fancy term that means for every kid or every X number of kids, we need this many leaders. So if we have... Five uh, kindergartners, we need one adult leader with them, and et cetera, et cetera. It's making sure we have the right supervision. And one of the things that I mentioned in that training is if you are a volunteer with us, here with one of our kids' programs, and all of a sudden you leave and don't tell anybody or you disappear for a while or maybe one day you don't show up to VBS or to something like that, it can leave us, actually, with a hole in our supervision. We have these ratios in place to make sure that we have adequate supervision. And if you are a volunteer and you suddenly leave, you can be leaving us with a hole in our supervision. And I think it's really, as I think about it, the same with ministries in the church with regards to our giftings. Because we all have different skills, gifts, and abilities. And if you aren't putting the gift that God has given you to use you're not only missing out on an opportunity in your own life, in your own experience, and your own relationship with God, but you may be leaving a hole in the ministry of the church that could be filled specifically by you and your giftings. Paul talks about it like parts of a body, and I think that really gets the point across, right? Eyes are really great at seeing, but if you want to smell something, your eyes aren't very helpful. You need a nose for that. If you had a body, and just imagine this, where all of your limbs were made up of just hands, you'd be really good at waving, be really good at high-fiving people, it's my favorite, you'd be really good at doing things that require dexterity that only a hand can provide. But as soon as you need to start running, man, you're going to look like a fool, you're going to just suck at basic things like walking because we need feet for that. If we don't have feet, it doesn't work. It goes beyond that, though. It's not all just about responsibility, but it's about opportunity. We have an opportunity to not only be used by God, but directly strengthened and supported by him. Check this out, verse 11. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. How incredible is that? If you're a gifted teacher or a speaker, do so with the authority given to you by God. Friends, I don't take this lightly when I stand up here on a Sunday morning, anytime I get on this stage. Because I can spew Andrew's words at you all day and tell you stories about this thing happening, who knows when, but it's not about me. (laughs) What I really desire every time I'm up on this stage is that I would be able to put my own ego and pride Aside and let God speak through me the message he has for our community here. That he would inspire and direct my words so that you can believe that what I'm saying is true. That he would encourage and uplift, but also challenge and convict you in the same way that he encourages and convicts me every time I have to spend time diving into these texts. Because when I speak up here on a Sunday morning... I do so for the glory and honor of the kingdom of Jesus. He continues, if anyone serves, he says, well, we just read in the last verse that that should be all of us, right? He says, use the gifting you have to serve. And he says, if anyone serves, so that should be all of us, do so with the strength that God provides. I don't need to tell any of you that sometimes serving in the church is not easy. Sometimes it's not fun. Sometimes it requires a nearly impossible amount of physical, mental, emotional strength to do so. I know Tammy and Jordan and Allison and Karen and all of our other incredible volunteers that have been putting in huge amount of hours and time into the prepping for this VBS. They're probably nearing their burnout point and we haven't even started the week yet. There are times when we have no choice but to rely on God's strength to get us through the task at hand. And he says that he provides it. But the thing is, is God doesn't just want us to rely on him as a last resort. God wants us to use the strength that he offers to serve his church, to serve his kingdom. God wants us to use the strength that he offers to serve his church and his kingdom. We should be kingdom-minded in our church life. Friends, God is working in our church. I believe that. He's at work here. God is working in our neighborhood, in our city, in our province, even amongst everything else that's going on. God is at work. And He wants us to come alongside Him and be a part of the work that He is doing. But we've got to remember, above all else, it is His mission. We do this for the sake of Christ. Our VBS team doesn't spend hours and hours and hours of their summer preparing for this week because they just love making stage decorations or painting windows or staring at spreadsheets for hours on end. Karen, I don't know how you do it. Making sure every single kid that's registered has all the details, all the waivers, gets in the right group with the right kids, and, oh, I want to be with my friend, and, oh, they're in a different age group doing all of that stuff. They don't do it because they love doing that kind of work, but because they love Jesus and want to share that love with the kids that are going to be streaming through those doors tomorrow. Our Food for Life team, I get to see them every Wednesday. They don't spend every single Wednesday afternoon at the church because they just love carrying and unloading boxes of food and throwing out the rotten stuff that gets everywhere and gets all goopy on your hands when you're trying to break down the boxes. They don't come here every Wednesday afternoon because they love begging produce and trying to communicate with people who often speak very little English. But it's because they love Jesus and they want to share that love with those in need in our community. Our deacons and our ushers don't do what they do on a Sunday morning because they just love unlocking doors and filling those little tiny cups with juice for 300 people and they want to because they love being the last ones out of the church so they can lock up. They love doing it, or they do it rather, because they love Jesus and they want to share that love with our church community by serving us every week. And I know there's so many more ministries, our nursery and our ESL ministries and our message before the message and our women's ministry and on and on and on. Friends, we don't do it because we just love working hard and we love doing all these things and working with people and clashing with people. We do it because we love Jesus and he's calling us to serve in our church. Peter ends this section by saying this. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. We do what we do as Christians so that God will be praised. We serve the local church and love those around us so that God will be praised. We seek to be kingdom-minded in our private and our public and church life and everything in between so that God will be praised. God's kingdom is at hand. The end of all things is near. What better time than now to serve him in our church, our community, our relationships, in all we say and do, so that he will be praised. Let's pray. Father, once again, I'm challenged by your text this morning, by your word. Challenged by the idea that, God, sometimes I grumble when it comes to serving. Sometimes I complain. Sometimes I make it about me. But, God, everything that we do here as a church...